Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm solo today. Andy is out of town. Uh, we didn't want to leave you another big gap before another episode, like the huge gap that you've just had while I was in New York and Andy was traveling too. Uh, so I've traveled to the house of an old friend, former guest of the show. I checked this out. It was uh, episode 36, way back when, uh, and a very fine comedian, Shane Moss. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Matt. Um, see, I... I um, you were on the show. I was. I thought you were on the show when you were completely in your previous life. But you were in the. I first met Shane as just a straight up stand up comic. Yeah, I a long time ago. But I, a lot's changed since I've been on on the show the last time for sure. Yeah. So but, you were just starting to. I should introduce you. You like as well as being an excellent stand up. Uh, you are the host of the Here We Are podcast, where you interview scientists yes. as you travel around, and also now doing a one man show called A Good Trip. Yeah. which is all about psychedelics, and we're going to talk about that and work out how we got there. So, yeah, you were just you were just starting to transfer. When you did the show a few years ago, when you did our show, you were just oh, starting to write... Oh, that was a weird one, because there's, like, some, like, rape thing in the news or something like that, and well, then we we were... So we were, like, talking about, like, the science of rape, which is, like... See, uh, I was away for that. uncomfortable. It, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't check out that episode. Then. Give that a miss. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a Brooks and Andy by themselves <laughs> and Shane. Uh, not, not, well, I was not in the London. most. I mean, there's uh, there's interesting studies about everything, but that's uh, yeah. a tough subject to talk, even though um, as important as it is to talk about. Yeah, real awkward on but a comedy podcast. Best settled by three comedians, three male comedians <laughs> yeah, in the backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you you were in fact you've been through you've been through numerous different versions. When I first first met you, you're a one liner comic. Yeah, pretty yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah, that was in London doing the world stands up. I there's been very many incarnations of yeah. me. When I started headlining, though, I found that audiences would get really used to one liners in yeah. a hurry, and then they would start. You couldn't get them off balance anymore. It, it just became yeah. Even um, I'm thinking like even like the best one liner comics, your sort of emos or your Stephen Wrights or whatever, generally have tricks to break up the rhythm. Yeah. If when they're doing longer shows, so like, I started throwing in little stories here and there just to break it up, and uh, and then I kind of liked stories more, and then they were just kind of easier and flowed better. And... Yeah. I started doing theme shows after I started doing international stuff. My first kind of take at it was my Netflix special mating season, which I look back on and I'm not all that happy with because it was just like my first take and I didn't quite know what I was doing with it. And I wish I would have done like more challenging material. At the time, I was like, I just want this to be really accessible so that anyone can laugh at this and... This is where you, you started to pair up with an inst- and talk to evolutionary biologists, and that was starting to influence the stand-up you were doing. Yeah, yeah, evolution. But it still ended up being mostly, like, relationship stuff, but with a scientific bent. Right, right. And and so, and I had more challenging material, too. I was just like, I, I really liked the idea that I could go into, you know, some, some club in, um, you know, maybe Texas or something like that where... 
they wouldn't be expecting any science type jokes and maybe don't uh, yeah you know, it's certain somewhere where it's that, just being billed as comedy night yeah yeah but they don't even know that you are the comedian they just know that comedy is going to happen at them yeah and to have someone come up afterwards and be like man i never thought i'd laugh at science it was like that felt very good to yeah. me at the time i'd and, say more specifically laugh with science because he's yeah. probably laughed at science numerous times oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah stupid science <laughs> Can you, you believe we come from monkeys? What? Where's my tail? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and so I was, I was like very proud of that at the time. But I look back at it now, and it's just like, eh, this wasn't what I exactly wanted to be doing. And then my my last and one was about breaking my feet, which was actually more about. I had already put together a set about kind of the the science of negative emotions and why we experience them and how they evolved and what their purpose is and um it was going fine enough but then i broke my feet and then that fit very well with all of that right so this is i've seen you do i've not seen this whole show but i've seen you do in shorter sets that's the specifically feet breaking story this is where you were you were rock climbing, yeah, which is a hobby of yours. I I was hiking at the time. Oh, that's right. You weren't yeah, even rock climbing. You were just on a hike in the climbing. mountains yeah. with a friend. But because of rock climbing and because I was in like the best shape of my life, because I was like sober at the time and like uh, and, and I was like ripped and uh, felt very invincible. <laughs> um, and then I found out otherwise. I just jumped off a thing that was too high and broke both of my feet and yeah, had to crawl down a mountain for a few hours. <laughs> But then that, so yep. so that's why I do more storytelling stuff too, because I realized that once I was able to put that in and then make it personal, the audience would come along with me so much further than just being like, so this is a neat thing about evolution or whatever it might be. Right. And it, it seems less like you're lecturing them. Right, right, right. Which is so much of the danger of trying to do any material like that. Yeah, and I think the same is true of political material. Like, I found whenever I've done anything, either with science or politics, I have to seed it through with a... Like, there has to be, like, almost a, a constant underbed of self-deprecation. Yeah, Because yeah. otherwise you just sound like like the class SWAT like lecturing the audience who hasn't come to be lectured at right especially and, politics yeah especially politics and especially if i'm talking about american politics to americans i have to undercut it with but also what the hell do i know like which is also true like i don't want to and yeah, that was a mistake yeah i mean but that was a mistake i made earlier i remember when i came to I, re- I remember like gigging in north carolina about a year after i got into the u.s and having it was around the time of the f- like I think it was like the second Bush elections, and I, I was doing a lot of political. St- would it? No, it would have been um, the first Obama elections. Okay. Um, but uh, just in North talk- Carolina, exactly yeah, in North yeah. Carolina. Which I mean, North Carolina for the South is a rel- is a pretty liberal state. It's yeah, it's like the the North. Uh, yeah, the North one is an improvement. It's like it's one of <laughs> they the have sta- Asheville and Wilmington, which is I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say Wilmington's like crazy progressive or anything like that, but it's hipper. Yeah, and this yeah. is Raleigh, which is a big college town. Oh, yeah. So there's there was a lot of like, but at the same time, there's I'm I'm a kid in his twenties, and I'm trying to tell people who've lived in america for 50 years like oh this is how it really is and you're like who the f-? like looking back on yeah. it now i cringe because even if i think some of the jokes were pretty good like i'm still like who the fuck are you to yeah. be talking and even if like looking back i'm like no i think i was still right but right. i could have i could have done it in such a 
more strategic fashion and such a less it's tricky up, up myself way i mean that's just what that all that stuff takes a long time to learn yeah and then and then you can dumb dumb things down too much too and then you can and like, like there's such a fine line between like being interesting not being pretentious not dumbing things down too yeah much. Like, and not like molly coddling them and also not like patronizing them with like you know, that kind of Right. Well, I know you believe something different, but here's if you just want to listen to me or like, <laughs> just give me a chance, guys. Just give me my side of the yeah. Uh, give me a chance, guys, would be a great album name. <laughs> <laughs> the least confident comedian <laughs> in the world. So uh, let me know what you think about this this skit that I do next. <laughs> coming up next. How's how's this? You stop like in the middle of a joke. Like how's this joke feeling to you so far? Like is the premise okay? I do some, you think I should change directions? I got it? some alternates. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the subtext. That is the subtext of everything we do because oh, we do yeah. like like every even the world's most confident comic. Like you see someone like Chris Rock in front of two thousand people destroying. But He's still, still thinking, did I repeat that last yeah. line one too many times? Because <laughs> six felt good, seven might have been too much. Yeah, and also every single joke that he's done in front that he's doing that night in front of those two thousand people, he's run in like a hundred times at like the comedy cellar and then small theaters and right. then bigger theaters. And every single time, if it doesn't hit, it like if a joke doesn't land three times, he's not gonna He's not going to go, no, fuck you, you're wrong. He's going to drop that joke. Yeah. And, like, he's Chris Rock. Like, that still happens at every level. <laughs> yeah. Like, we are still we are still underneath it all going, like, how's this one? Is this a- <laughs> is this- yeah, I mean, even in some of my act I do now about psychedelics, there's, there's parts, like, the audience is so giving and so enthusiastic because I think a lot of people are kind of in the closet about psychedelics and that sort of thing and, and, yeah. and don't really have um any anywhere to go to get like a good take on it or to be entertained by that humor necessarily and and so they are so patient and so intelligent and and i still run into problems where i'm just like uh is this is this a bit much like this might be too self-indulgent right now (laughs) this might be like a little too up on my soapbox kind of thing you know and that that just never ends the questioning yourself i mean nor should it i guess yeah i think there are limits but we can all think of probably a couple of comics who don't question themselves enough oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, you have too much confidence in that the open micers with the the laugh ears is like a real thing where we, someone oh, we, as in we hearing always, laughs we, with their own. Yeah, we always call them laugh ears in in Boston, where it'd be like you would just watch someone, you would feel like so bad for them, even though they're like still really confident and stuff like that. And then they get off and they just be like, "Whew, hot audience!" And that was I just killed it, like loved the set that they had and wow. everyone else in the room just thought they bombed horribly wow yeah there's that there's the um there's like that sort of middle ground where they've like newer acts have borrowed inflections from established acts like yeah. those little turns of phrase like oh that's a bit too much or yeah you weren't ready for that one <laughs> but that's like lines that have been dropped into their set having seen someone established do it when it actually is correct 
Yeah, yeah. Buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> it's just like, no, you've got the mannerisms of a pro, but the material and delivery of a new book. I've I've seen new people that are so good on stage and that I'm like, oh man, if I should just I should just write this person's jokes for them <laughs> and they'll be huge. Um so you started talking you started talking to evolutionary biologists mm-hmm. and then that branched out to starting a podcast where you talk to every manner of scientists as you traveled around the u.s yeah mostly life science stuff mostly animal and like human behavior a little more tangible things i like physics and stuff but i haven't really had much physics stuff on my podcast Uh i'm not sure if i will be talking about chemistry in any depth on my podcast anything that kind of like zooms in a little too far I feel like and is just like a little less relatable. Yeah. Um, I'm not confident enough at this point to approach. Um, yeah, I I mean, originally I, I was trying to do these themed things anyway. And and my representation was on me to like think of a TV show or whatever. And I kind of brainstormed this idea originally about like the science of sex or something. And as I looked into it and learned more about evolutionary psychology and biology, it just kind of changed the the way that I looked at things a lot and I, it was just like really fascinating and and I was found myself talking about it all the time and and I was like well maybe I do maybe I should just start reaching out to some of these academics see if I can maybe put together some shows in LA or something like that and connected with some people made some friends and we'd have these mind-blowing conversations over a lunch or whatever and and after a while I was like if I would have just recorded that so many people would would have been so much, so entertained and had their minds blown by that. And uh-huh. so I was like, gosh, oh, that's, that's what the podcast is then. Right. And, um, yeah, cause you've branched out into different life sciences. Cause I rem- remember at the time, like we've evolutionary psychology is one that comes up on our show quite a bit and is of all the biological sciences. That's the one that has the most gray areas and the most criticism from other branches of science. Oh, certainly. Cause it does seem to be the one that, and it's that, very new. Yeah, and it seems to be the one where people are most likely to implant their own preconceptions onto their findings. Yeah. Like, it seems like people... Uh, like we had we had an episode with... I think... Did I ever connect you with Amy, Dr. Amy Parrish, who's the mm. bonobo expert? You need to talk to her. But she's uh, she did our live episode a couple of years ago with Tim Minchin. She's a bonobo expert and, evolu- and Darwinian feminist, she describes herself as... And a, and a lot of her like the her work seems to start from a position of debunking a lot of the preconceptions that people have from, from like evolutionary psychology. Already? Yeah, well, like she was telling her the re, the sort of where the, I'm butchering her thought process, which is far more advanced than I can manage on the show. But one of the things she was talking about is how so much is drawn from. Well, we we are really close cousins with chimps, and chimps behave like this. Therefore, this right, is what humans right, believe. Right. And she's like. Uh, behave rather and she's like well we are the exact same evolutionary distance from bonobos as we are from chimps we're the same cousin right and bonobos unlike chimps are a matriarchal society and they and behave in, like crazy and yeah don't, aren't as violent and yeah and all the sort of things about hierarchy and behavior that people draw from chimps are almost directly contradicted by bonobos which are the exact same evolutionary distance, which yeah. I'm sure is stuff you've encountered. Either. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, F- France DeWald has a good 
book, the the inner ape. That's a, that's a lot about that kind of stuff, right? Um, and I I know I mispronounced his name just then, but but um, yeah, I mean, so evolutionary psychology. I think the first textbook of evolutionary psychology was in the 1970s. Okay, so this is brand new stuff, and it's changing all the time. And evolutionary psychologists are starting to kind of turn around and re-examine things and everything else but yeah i mean i i remember after at first being like this is everything this is explaining everything um you know i, I realized after a while that i was like oh no there's there's a lot of holes in here and there's a lot of and so i got more into neuroscience um uh-huh. and behavioral economics is one of my favorite things and and what um, is behavioral and, economics more like uh do you know dan Ariely? um um he he does a lot of behavioral economics is is kind of like the um the saying like humans aren't robots so economists think of think of um humans as like 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 all of these fiscal decisions as being very rational and anytime you're deviating from that you're being irrational but um but there's a lot of reasons why why it it makes more sense to behave in so to combine like evolutionary psychology with this if so it might make no sense whatsoever to um spend money on like buy someone else a dinner a lobster dinner but if you're a date on a date and you can max out your credit card to get laid that night you have a potential to um spend you know pass your genes on for the next however many you know millions of years or whatever so the the cost involved yeah you're gonna have to pay that credit card bill eventually but but the the cost of missing out on that opportunity is higher um and so it's it's a lot of that kind of stuff there's there's a lot of like um let me let me think of a uh better uh, example of um behavioral economics than that i am um i'm struggling to think of any right now so it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff like the psychology of of uh marketing and like different choices like putting if you put 20 different choices of of jams out in a grocery store um people people will as like a sampler thing people will be like ooh i get to try jams but then they won't actually buy any of them because there's too many choices to make uh-huh. whereas if you just put a few people are more likely to be like oh that was good i'll buy that one and so it's it's just kind of the psychology of how people spend money and how how marketing works essentially okay so so there's there's a million different things like um like when you're picking out a car, you shouldn't go by miles per gallon and they're trying to get this changed and put a different sticker on it. You should be going by gallons per 10,000 miles. How many? So intuitively you would think if you're, if you're the difference between a 10 mile an hour truck and a 12 mile an hour truck is like nothing. Who cares? That's just too or miles per gallon not miles per hour i was screwing that up um and but uh, but if you take like a hybrid car that gets either 
40 miles to the gallon or 55 or 60 miles to the gallon, that seems like you're saving so much more money doing that way. But if you put in the calculations instead, how many gallons are you using in a year to get to 10,000 miles or whatever, that's uh-huh. the average a year, you'll end up, because of the gallons that a truck will go through at that lower mileage, you'll end up saving way more ga- gallons from 10 to 12 than you will from 40 to 60. Okay. And so that's behavioral economics is that sort of thing. The psychology of how we're making purchasing decisions and how you can prime that in various ways. So you started talking to all these scientists. Yeah. And at the same time, you went on a journey with various psychedelic... Or like, what was the timeline of that? Well, I've been doing psychedelics for um, like a good 20 years or so. Okay. And... Um, I've always liked psychedelics. I've always been in relationships where I've not been able to do them as often as I'd liked. And so a few things happened. One, I discovered DMT, which I became kind of obsessed with, um, which is the world's most powerful hallucinogen, um, basically, or up there anyway. And so that and then I got out of a relationship and was single and was free to do more psychedelics. And also I had, um, I just like doing themed things and I have folders of all these different themes and different jokes that I have about them, like evolutionary psychology or behavioral economics or Uh different, um, like premises for solo shows and these folders filled with jokes. Some of them hardly have any, some of them have a bunch and my psychedelics folder happened to just be full at the time. I had like an hour of material. I'd throw in like a few minutes here and there at a regular show. And I was on um, Pete Holmes' You Made It Weird, and I talked about DMT. And um, and it was a really fascinating episode for a lot of people, and a lot of people listened to it and were obsessed and were like, oh, my God, that was... And people started coming out to shows and stuff, and my agent had heard the episode. And rather than be like, why are you why are you doing these dangerous drugs? She was like, that was really fascinating. And I was like, well, just since we're talking about it, I do have this hour material that I want to do eventually once I'm like a bigger name and have more of a draw because I don't want to do it now and and come out of the closet as a big psychedelic advocate and user and everything because I have to get like these respectable scientists and I don't, and that Uh sort of thing. And it's also scary to think about like, doing this material in front of your family and all of that sort of... Yeah, and like that sort of thing of, do you want someone Googling your name and that's the first thing that comes up? Yeah, do you want to be the psychedelic guy? Like, if it's really good and then you're like, you now you're that guy. Yeah. You know, I have lots of things that I'd like to talk about and write shows based on. Um, but my, my agent was like, well, why don't we just try it out at a few indie venues? I'll just line a few up for you. Did that. They went great. And we were like, well, why don't we just, we can tack a night on here and there at the end of, of uh, a, you know, a week or before a week starts. So you start doing like a sort of Thursday to Saturday club weekend and then you just do like a Monday, like a Sunday extra bonus show where you do this thing. Yeah. And at first it was hard to market. I didn't have all the marketing down, but the people that would show up loved it. And then, and then. After about six months of that, I figured out how to target the psychedelic crowd on like social media and whatnot, and um, 
and through through like ads and stuff and then once i did that um i started filling rooms with this show and we started tacking more of them on and then i was having so much success with it that my agent was like let's do a tour let's just do a big tour with this and um and so that's why i'm i'm now doing a 65 city tour (laughs) (laughs) with this show it all came i didn't really have any like intention going into it or expectations for it i was just like you know this is stuff i'd like to do eventually we'll see how it goes it all came together kind of uh, by accident when you do the show how much of your audience are like psychedelic people how much are just comedy straight comedy fans how many are curious like what's the kind of breakdown well because i'm targeting the psychedelic crowd more people are only there because of the premise of it and don't know who i am right then no like i'm not a big name draw so i would say out of a hundred people that are there maybe 10 or 20 of them are fans of mine and the rest are just like have like seen you on conan or whatever and yeah yeah maybe heard me on various podcasts or something like that yeah um and then the rest of them are are just i've i found them and they're psychedelic enthusiasts and they're like oh comedy show about psychedelics okay yeah because i'm thinking like every talk about psychedelics is normally from a guy in a very old sweater who's very (laughs) earnest yeah yeah i mean it's funny the crowd that came out i was expecting there to be more of like a burning man sort of crowd coming out or you know or a hippie yeah yeah more like i mean and there's definitely there's going to be some dreadlocks in the show for sure but but there's definitely way more like older people in sweaters that are like very very kind of astute uh, you know intelligent curious people and and some old hippies and stuff as well and but it's it's a remarkably bright audience uh, more more so than i even thought early on i Uh was expecting there to be far more burnouts but i think that i'm realizing that the psychedelic crowd and the stoner crowd although there's plenty of overlap are definitely two different things yeah and there's people that that and and probably both dabble a little bit here and there in the other but people that are like way into psychedelics definitely usually aren't like burnouts is what i'm finding yeah well there's a i heard recently about the latest silicon valley life hack which is probably not even the latest it's now like five generations ago because everything right so quickly but uh of was it micro dosing with well i'll take like a lsd a fraction of a dose of lsd yeah just throughout the day yeah just yeah. to lift their brain processes yeah just to make it a bit more creative i mean lsd and in, in uh mri scans just makes just makes more connections in the brain um which is interesting it, i mean it also makes you when you trip you also i mean i'm not sure it would be good for like data entry or something like uh-huh. that some something if you do something creative i think it will help but because it's kind of like a perpetual daydream state and you're making all these connections and but you're going you're definitely going kind of in your head more if you microdose you might not even consciously realize that it's happening but kind of simple tasks in the outside like you know doing the to-do list and that sort of thing and and cooking food or whatever it might be are are a bit more difficult when you're tripping and so uh, it would only be good for certain jobs i would say so how much have you looked into or talked to people about the science of what what is happening when you trip well my um 
my tour um, is is sponsored or kind of like an honorary sponsorship cross promotional kind of deal uh, by MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which is the largest in uh, in the country, as far as I know. Um, as as far as researchers go, they have they've been around for a very long time. And they are they are in phase three of of getting um, MDMA uh, approved for clinical use and then hopefully rescheduled as well. And so um, their studies that they've had lots and lots of success with are uh, are with PTSD. So they've taken people with a minimum of like 15 years of PTSD that have also tried various things before, various uh-huh. therapies and medications and stuff before, and are kind of at their wits' end. And, and like usually the most severe cases, and some of them veterans, some of them victims of abuse or you know sexual assault or whatever it might be. And so in a therapy session, they give them mdma and so what mdma does um and i'm sure a variety of other things as well um including like make your body feel nice and warm and um fuzzy but it uh it it uh decreases blood flow to the amygdala so the your like fight or flight kind of response which when you have ptsd um, you, that's, that's the pro you, you think of, you get some sort of, there's some sort of trigger, some sort of reminder of the event and your amygdala just lights up way too much. It's like, Whoa, get the hell out of here. And, and even just thinking about it, you have to like, just try to not think about it and suppress uh-huh. it. And, um, and so it, it, it decreases blood flow to the amygdala while at the same time increasing bl- blood flow to the uh, prefrontal cortex, a lot of your uh, executive functions and kind of decision-making functions. And so then, and people are just kind of um, left to kind of talk through their issues and, and then they find that all of a sudden they're able to talk through some of these traumatic issues to a therapist in this in this controlled, comfortable setting with without it being as traumatic as it usually is because the amygdala doesn't have the blood supply to make it as traumatic as it usually is and huh. and so um and and so this has been so this is stage 3 so they've already had an incredible amount of of success with this and so after this one it will be legal for clinical use and and this is this is like a very big project now that this is like a multi-million dollar study that they're trying to get funds for and everything else and they need like a kilo of of like pure mdma and and which i think is like a half a million dollars alone and then they need to train therapists on how to do this like, all kn- over the country i know a guy if you need it <laughs> <laughs> uh it needs to be the good stuff and then um oh he said it's good <laughs> <laughs> that's the trouble he said it convincingly shit um yeah get get drug testing kits and whatnot and and so and they're also changing the studies up a little bit so they used to do um some they would do a placebo which i never quite understood like you're you're either like feeling the the drug that powerful yeah how like things any drug that has like a noticeable psychoactive (laughs) effect like it like surely placebo is almost impossible yeah i know there are i know there are certain things that you can suggest there are certain suggestible elements like if it was like really low dose you can give someone orange juice tell them it's vodka and orange and they'll start to feel a bit drunk and yeah yeah but 
Like, you can't. But what's really interesting with um, with their studies is is they've had different levels. So they have some middle level that's like 40 milligrams or whatever, and then 70 or 80 milligrams or something like that. And what they found is that 40 milligrams doesn't really work. It it it's It's like just enough to get in your head a little bit, but it's still like there's a lot of confusion. And so you don't know how to process it. You just kind of need to like really get in there and see it a little clearer. And that's where the change happens. So they're actually cutting out the smaller doses from the studies because there hasn't been much benefit with the smaller doses. So then how do they do... Um how do they do comparison trials? Because if it's like, okay, you've got to give them 70 milligrams or whatever it is, and they're flying. Yeah. Um, so, so then they, they have, they have um, some scales of how to measure PTSD, and they have like follow-up visits where they're not giving them MDMA, like I think every week or something like that. And so, and so people, that have, people that have the placebo seem seem to go down just a little bit just getting therapy helps a little bit right and so and so it does i wish i had these graphs in front of me but there's so so there's like this line where it's like you don't officially have ptsd anymore and so people are starting way up here and they're going down a little bit and then with these lower doses some of them are dropping down below the ptsd line um but the ones with the larger doses are substantially below it and uh, and um almost normalized and um and it's a, a seemingly lasting effect as far as they can tell um as well just because they were just given an opportunity to work through it um and and a lot of this stuff is like how this is happening like no one really knows for uh, like for example, you can just have people write about their problems, writing therapy, and 50% of people will feel better just having wrote their problems down. And 50% of people won't. It's not going to work for everybody. Huh. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a good book, The the Secret Life of Pronouns, that talks a little bit about that. I guess that I had on had on my show but and then so lsd is definitely creating like if you see mris of ls of an a brain on lsd it's like it's lit up it's like the connections being made compared to a normal brain are insane and i and i have and and there's there's a lot of like synesthesia so synesthesia is is um uh, synesthesia is like a muddling of the senses where yeah you sort of people with synesthesia full-time round will maybe for example see certain words as specific colors or right smell sounds or whatever yeah 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 and um and so and they're thinking as the reason why that happens is because because when you're born your brain's kind of like this blob of just like it's just getting this dense information unfiltered and over over time you have to be like okay this is a color we'll put this in a category this is a shape we'll put this in a category and and it does that through synaptic pruning is how it kind of categorizes these these neurons kind of atrophy and and so it's like okay this goes over here this goes over here and there's a separation in the neurons between those two categories and they think that people with synesthesia maybe just didn't have a little this of this pruning they didn't get pruned as much as what it seems like and um so psychedelics um can can um bring on synesthesia 
sometimes because they they start bridging these gaps and creating these these connections that had been atrophied or or uh-huh. were dead previously. And my thinking about some of that stuff is is that this synaptic pruning stuff was very important when you were when you were a child when when life is just so much to take in as it is it's already like very overwhelming you know that's probably why it's so exciting to be a child because everything's so new and so exciting and i'm sure it's all the brain that all the brain can do to like learn a language and learn to count and learn to read and 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 so to separate things and categorize things that's great whatever you can do to just kind of break up this this raw data coming in is terrific but i think that as an adult we're used to all this stuff i think we can i think we can handle taking in more information from the environment now but it's too late those synapses have al- already been pruned and so i think that psychedelics might might be able to uh be a way of kind of uh, correcting some of that or enhancing it and um, allowing people to look at life a little bit differently and, and be more inquisitive. One thing that is testable is there there seems to be a personality change um, on one per- one particular aspect. So have, have you guys had on like, uh, have you guys talked about like the big five personality uh, indicator? No. Um, this is like Myers-Briggs or whatever, the same sort of thing. Right. Which is like Myers-Briggs is pretty not, pseudoscientific. Right? Yeah. And it's not reputable. Like scientists don't use that, but, but people, yeah. people know it seems what to it be is. a big thing on like dating sites more than scientific journals. Yeah. And, and employers will, are still using it, but, but right. scientists don't, uh, that's like, uh, have gotten very much away from it. If you ever seen someone describe themselves or being described as it'll be something like it's four letters so it'll be right. like uh i and what what are the it's options like it's like introspection and yeah interest I, uh extrovert or introvert yeah um and then and and so so big five is very much like that and i know what these ones are and and again this isn't perfect but it does it does do a fairly nice job of summing up certain things and some of these things are extremely flexible and the problem is is there's self-reporting and and rather than observing it as a different thing altogether but but so so the big five are conscientiousness like i'm very low in conscientiousness um like this is this is how i live my life like very messy disorganized kind uh-huh. of person we're sitting in a very dirty garage right now for listeners and um and then there's uh there's agreeableness like i'm i'm a little low in agreeableness i tend to argue with people and uh i like debating and and i'm a skeptical person um there's stability and neuroticism which i'm in the middle of i'm i'm uh it says i'm not unstable but i'm not particularly stable uh which is fair and then extroversion which i'm kind of in the middle i'm just as happy talking with people as i am being by myself and then there's openness, and openness is the one that um, psychedelics do have a testable effect on. So, so through filling out these questionnaires, or there's other ways of doing it. Like you can go to this program, applymagicsauce.com, and it will go through all of the Facebook pages that you have liked, and then kind of determine your psychological profile of this big five on it. And and. Um, but say in this self-report, it's asking you, do you like eating um, at new restaurants or something like that? And it, 
and you put like strongly agree or strongly disagree. So that would be like a question for openness. Uh, how much uh, you um, you love travel? Agree or disagree or something like you know these are uh-huh. the sorts of questions that it's getting to that openness. And so if you're a highly open person, you probably love traveling. You're you you probably not only are you not adverse to new and novel. Uh, unexpected situations you probably like thrive off of that can't get enough new um stimulation and and you're like highly inquisitive uh always trying new things and, and the downside is is that if you're very high in this you tend to get yourself in a lot of trouble and and um you're you probably don't have much respect for authority and you you probably are a little too spontaneous and then people that are really low in this are like they they probably never really left their hometown outsiders are very scary to them um uh you know no sense in trying anything new the the information that you already have is the best you know the past the past was great because it already happened there's nothing scarier than the future Uh, you just why can't we just go back to the past wasn't that wonderful let's just do that over and over again we made it through that and so um psychedelics one dose of psychedelics will in the majority of people make them rate higher in openness for the foreseeable future for at least a year and sometimes for the rest of their lives so that's that's one thing that um psychedelics overwhelmingly seem to be tested to do wow yeah which has bearing on politics in terms uh, yeah. of oh ab- absolutely creating change over well and if you look at like the civil rights movement which is right when the drugs got scheduled by nixon you were all these people that are that are low in openness are like the the upside of it and the reason why you evolve these kind of spectrums of personalities is is that these people love laws like life gave them a playbook it's so easy to follow you wish laws were a little stricter so others would follow them more too and things would be more predictable and and um and if you're a lawmaker those are absolutely your most favorite people and so uh, aside from everything else that was happening um during uh, the kind of 60s and the civil rights movement and uh, people were taking psychedelics and it was having this effect on their personality and people were starting to question authority more and everything else and and i'm not like giving psychedelics the credit for civil rights movement or anything like that i'm just saying that that there there's probably a slight effect there as well and and so and and this isn't stuff that this isn't like a conspiracy where um where like any of any leaders knew this well like like nixon nixon had a team of people um research it scientists and and lawmakers and everything else and they they told him that he should uh that that they should not do scheduling that they should instead focus on therapy um for people that have problems with drugs and he ignored all of that so this he didn't have any like scientific background or anything but there's a long history right up to the present day of scientists being commissioned by governments to do studies right and then being only accepted if the studies directly correlated with what the politicians wanted to do anyway yeah like i mean we- look at dea which was just like re-examined for descheduling and then they made it even though everyone it's going to be legal everywhere very uh-huh. soon and they still made it a with schedule weed. one with weed and it's and uh, we just talked to uh about a half a year ago we had johan hari who wrote a book on the drug war Oh and, really? And it's a uh, yeah, and 
And there's been so much, so much of that was related to, again, the civil rights movement and race, and so yeah. much of it was related to um, a, fed, a department of feds who suddenly need to just justify their existence after alcohol prohibition finished. Yeah, I mean, what uh, what are you going to do? Just, like, to deschedule marijuana, you're just like, so, should we all just, like, uh, <laughs> eliminate our own jobs? <laughs> like, that'd be crazy. Uh, and then also related to just, you know, the prison industrial complex and needing to get needing to get poor and black people into the prison system yeah, so they can get cheap labor because slavery is no more. It's a fun world. Yeah. Uh, but then in the UK, there was... um. There are numerous examples, including uh, Professor David Nutt, who was working for the government at one point and then brought out a study, like refused to retract a study and statement saying, amongst other things, MDMA is less dangerous than horse riding, which is true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then then he got basically dropped by the government and denounced and sacked and... Yeah, I mean, uh, and that stuff started as that stuff started as uh, as therapy uh, for um, uh, cl- uh, for clinical use, and then it did hit the streets in the eighties. MDMA and MDA were illegal; like you could go to bars. There'd be like MDMA bars that you could. That go I to. didn't know. Yeah, there's. A, I thought they were banned a long time ago. So MDMA is for some of our listeners who don't know that's otherwise known in the U.S. as Molly, ecstasy, and ex- it's the main ingredient rolling. of ecstasy. Yeah. Um, and, so when you're talking about XG tablets, that's MDMA. Yeah, and there was like there was in Dallas there was there was these nightclubs where it was it'd be kind of like an alternative to drinking, but then some people were also serving alcohol, which isn't the best thing to do. Um, and and there was there was some uh, there was some high profile deaths, basically like rich kids um, that that died in these bars. And the other unfortunate thing with all of these kind of statistics of of people getting harmed and whatnot is if you get in a drunk driving accident and then if you're drunk, you drive, you get in an accident, you're going to go to the hospital, they're going to test your blood. And if you smoked weed last week and marijuana is in your blood, that's that's a hit on marijuana. Someone someone arrived in the hospital with marijuana in their system and they were in a car accident um, with marijuana in their system. And so it was like that sort of a thing happened because they're mixing it with alcohol and doing whatever other dumb stuff. And then, um, and you know, they wanted answers for this and that, and, and that was, that was when the maps organization got, um, got started, uh, was right after that, actually. That's, that's their history because this guy, Rick Doblin, um, then, uh, who, who was like one of the top therapists and doing a lot of research with this stuff was, had, had all of these, you know, in front of Congress would go and testify and, and then they ultimately just decided, you know, well, you know, if it makes the angry parents happy, this is just what we have to do. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a, there's been a few recent cases in the UK, like uh, like well within my lifetime, within my adult lifetime, where, um, for example, in due to a loophole in a 2000, pretty much the year 2005, with a little bit on either side, mushrooms were legal <laughs> for like one year in Britain. Yeah, uh, and were being sold just in shops. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful. Where and then that loophole got closed because of you know various because that can't yeah. be allowed. Um, but that that loophole was because it used to be that 
fresh mushrooms were legal because they grew in people's backyards just naturally. So the the drug law used to be anytime you did anything to that the mushroom, like if you dried it, if you brewed it in the tea, if you cooked it, uh, anything you did to adulterate it, it became class A, which is on the same level as like crack. Right. But the second you but in a fresh state, it was legal. So people started to like, grow them and, and buy them from up. Amsterdam and then sell them. Like, sell them, like, under the counter. And then someone eventually wrote to the home office and said, is this illegal? And they had to write back and go, actually, no. So for a year, every, like, head shop in the country was selling mushrooms, just importing them wholesale from Amsterdam. Yeah. Amsterdam has also now, like, closed the, a lot of the laws, like yeah, the Netherlands. But then there was another drug, and this is, I think, a perfect example of the just misinformation there was a drug connected to like rel- related to mdma that called mephadrone mm. that was also called mcat and then ended up being called meow meow because of a false newspaper article where someone just told them that was what it was called no one was calling it that and then the newspaper started writing about this new drug meow meow that, <laughs> that no one called it that but then there was a death then someone died on this drug uh and within like a month, it was like I can't remember the timeline, but it was very quick. It was going through Parliament, and then, uh, and the law was passed even before the autopsy results fully came out, which showed that this person who died wasn't even on that drug. Yeah, like yeah. that person was on alcohol and methadone, not methadrone. Methadone being the sort of the drug that heroin, people take to wean yourself off heroin. Yeah, yeah which is an opiate. Uh, but. It seems to be a problem. There are people who have problems with drugs, and there are problems with drugs, sure. but this wild misinformation and this moralizing that gets implanted on top of it. Yeah, and it's it, it's too bad. I mean, first off, I'm I'm an advocate for psychedelics rights and and research. I don't necessarily think that they're good for everyone or anything like that, and you know there can be problems. But it's also like it's weird that I have to feel the need to do that disclaimer. Like if you. It, if I opened my show about warning people about the dangers of alcohol, right. like I would, I would be banned from every club in the country, <laughs> every, every single club, and that's one of the most dangerous substances on earth. Yeah. I, I'm not, I drink alcohol. I'm not saying you don't drink alcohol, but it, but it, but it is statistically just one yeah. of the most dangerous things. There's another. There is evidence that I believe there's evidence. You'll know better than I do that psychedelics can help with addictions. To things like alcohol. Yeah, I mean, there, there's like, uh, I, I know there's this very powerful one, Abogaine, that seems to help um, people um, pe- uh, quit people heroin. With heroin addictions, um, which seems very intense. Uh, I've heard, yeah, I've heard stories of like people going to retreats like, in like Central America or something. And- yeah, yeah, I, I might eventually do that, actually. <laughs> I kind of have an opportunity to do that. I kind of uh i'm 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 a bit more adventurous than your average population um ayahuasca a lot of people do for um and i actually have a lot of theories about what's going on there that that i think that people are misinterpreting because it's like very spiritual to these people right so i've got we've we've got some mutual friends who do ayahuasca quite a bit yeah and they and i've never taken it myself but i've heard like ayahuasca is is DMT the active ingredients in it? Yeah, yeah. And it, it it's prepared in it's from is it from a cactus or from a? It's a tree bark. Tree bark, and it's pre- but it but they actually it's sort of 
a whole ceremony people who do it seriously they they have a a shaman takes them through the process and they you drink this like you have to fast beforehand you drink this liquid it normally makes you throw up yeah and I've then done you a go couple ceremonies okay yeah so how does it compare to other things you've taken well i've done lots of dmt and right. i don't know if it's because i did i had done so much dmt before ayahuasca but dmt you're smoking like the active ingredient in ayahuasca and it's just a very 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 intense 10 minute long trip whereas ayahuasca is like a, a bit more mellow and slower to come on and everything else and it's like four or five hours and everything's like slower and my two ayahuasca experiences were pretty disappointing. I mean, I enjoyed myself, but I was expecting it to be like DMT, but longer, and it was incredibly mild. But um, and so, so most people they go down and they're like, "Oh, I, I see now. I've, you know, I, I, I saw myself." die and realize that this is just you know this meat suit that i'm in and i realized i need to get out of my corporate job and uh and go and focus on pottery or whatever but i think that i think that it's people that are one maybe a little too open-minded maybe a little too agreeable maybe a little on the gullible side that are going through what the brain thinks is a very traumatic event because i mean smoking dmt is compared to drinking ayahuasca to me felt like the difference between like chewing on cocoa leaves and snorting cocaine um and i i think that the the brain thinks it's being uh thinks it's dying and and you're and you're seeing all of these um simulations in your head so i've i've seen i've smoked dmt and i've seen i've seen my life like the rest of my life simulated in front of me in like eight different directions like all at once like there's a choice i could make and here were like eight different outcomes based on whatever choice that i made and i've also seen like my life flash before my eyes on dmt and all these old memories and everything else and then project past that um to to like ideas of of what life was like before I was born and stuff like that. Like I see a lot of like fifties themed stuff on, in DMT, and I've also seen like scenes from like old weird battles and whatnot. And I just think it's that I think when your life flashes before your eyes, your brain is just searching through everything, every experience. Like, quick, do we have anything for this? Like, if you're falling out of a pl- uh, like a, from a plane or something uh-huh. like that, your brain's like, do we? <laughs> have we been in a situation anything like this before? And and I think the brain's so much more powerful than people realize. And then so you it, think the flashing before their eyes isn't so much like a kind of like, oh shit, let's like what? this is the last thing you do before you die. It's the brain going like going through its filing cabinet, just looking for a tool. Yeah, that can... yeah exactly. How do we make a parachute out of? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was this MacGyver app? You've seen a MacGyver episode. Yeah. There must be a way to do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, just like that. And and then also, I think it's going forward at the same time. I think your life flashing before your eyes is underselling it. Like when I broke my feet, I saw my life flash kind of before my eyes, but that was n- not anything. I also saw my life going forward. Am I going to be in a wheelchair now? Am I uh, uh, am I going to need to call in a helicopter? And simulating all of these things in like seconds. And um, I think we really undersell what the what the brain is capable of. I mean, I've seen it on DMT trips. I, and but I we also about- kind of oversell what the brain is capable of at the same time. Like, I think people 
particularly at the more spiritual end of things, will sometimes oh that you can like manipulate the universe and yeah, like that draw, kind of thing. Wild... And like if I just think hard enough about like wanting a nice house and then I get one, uh, which would be weird because the world would be just this weird masturbatory fantasy, <laughs> and just everyone's like inner desires were coming through. There's also right. some good evidence that the opposite of the secret is true. Like, the more you visualize things, the less you get them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because it's incredibly disappointing. And, you're, uh, and, you're and gets... the less you work towards it. Like, if you see yourself being successful about something, you lose some of that motivation to chase it. Yeah, like, I got it. It's like the open micer with laugh ears. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's going to happen. I'm pretty sure. I've <laughs> yeah. asked the universe. Yeah, but are you actually, um, you're actually writing that thing that's going to get you the... No, it'll happen. I feel good about it. Yeah. Well, especially if... I'll put it on a vision board. The other thing is is that is that gap, that infinite void of, of, of where we are compared to where we want to be is something that will swallow you alive if you if you don't if you if you just dwell on like on that all of the time on the wanting but um but i think that when people do ayahuasca the brain thinks that it's dying it thinks that it's been poisoned just like if you do mushrooms um before the actual trip starts and a lot of people don't know this your your body will have this by uh, the this physiological reaction to being poisoned like Wait, what the fuck did we did we eat something bad? Do we need to throw up right now? Kind of like car sickness is sort of the same sort of uh, these false alarms are going off in your head, and um, car sickness is generally like a disconnect between like that's why reading in a car is bad because you're in a ear, your balance is telling you you're moving, but you're focused on a fixed point, so your yeah. eyesight is going, we're not moving. Right, And yeah. that disconnect is... Never happened in our evolutionary history, so the brain's like, why is this guy saying yeah. this? Why is this other guy saying this? It's also why being below deck on a ship is normally more likely to induce nausea than it is than being above deck. Right, and this neurologic m- communication could only be... Uh, could only happen if you ate something bad if you ate some poison that's so then it's like we need to purge yeah and i think something like that is happening on ayahuasca and um and i think that when because you hear a lot of ego death stuff of people being like it's like i saw my own funeral and blah 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 well we can all sit like you can close your eyes and kind of visualize what your funeral would be like and who might be there and whatnot but your brain your non-conscious the stuff that you can really see on on uh powerful psychedelic like that can really can can do it like a dreamlike state and you will actually like see it you know um just like you would a dream and and so i think that a lot of times people think that and then and then when you when you think that you're so that's kind of explaining like some of this ego death stuff i feel like and then also when you when you feel like you're dying you're non-conscious or when you get in like some real shit in your life we've all had like real dark troubling times in our lives or been in this real pickle of a situation where there's this kind of an embarrassing bit of groveling that your brain will take part in. like please if you just get me through this situation i promise i'll yeah. be the bestest boy in the whole wide world which and- you do even if you're not a religious person but you're just sort of saying that to yeah. whatever you're just saying i'll that never to yourself. screw up like this again i'm gonna eat better i'm gonna do yoga i'm gonna treat <laughs> others nicer and i think that's exactly what's happening with people coming back from peru and it's just like you know they they don't quite realize that's what was happening but that's they all come back with the same sort of story of of like 
And then I realized that I shouldn't eat meat anymore because, and that's another thing, like that shit makes you sick as hell. And if you're just uh, compare it to like being the most hungover you've ever been in your life, like stomach wise, you don't feel like eating anything when you're that sick. And the best you can like force down your belly is like fruits and vegetables, you know? (laughs) Uh, and, And so, so that's like what your body feels like at that time. Plus you haven't eaten for a day. So you're hungry. And so your body wants fruits and vegetables. And then you're, and then you consciously come up with this story of like, and animals are like us and we need to watch out for them. And, and your conscious just kind of creates these stories to justify what is just a pretty simple physiological response. Uh, so let's go to DMT quickly. Cause yeah. we're, we're getting towards the end of the time that we have, but I want to talk a bit about, about that. I, I think, uh, I think I, I have a little bit of time. Excellent. Here. Um, yeah, so, so DMT, um, what do you want to talk about specifically? I, I can share some experiences or I can just talk about some science ideas that I have. About... Well, let's go, let's start with the science and sort of, I'm sure some of the experiences will come through that as well. Yeah. So have you spoken to, I know again, as, uh, your friends aside that they're by its very nature, the science of what happens to your body on certain drugs is pretty sparse because it's very hard to study. Yeah, it's very hard to hard le- to study, and I'm not sure that I trust what is out there. I mean, most of the people that are studying this stuff are probably a little overly enthusiastic about it, you know. And, right. Um, uh, you know, there's the like DMT, the spirit molecule. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or the DEA. We're, we're right. trying to just justify their laws um, and keep their jobs. So, so it's so called it's the like spirit one molecule. Of the two. Yeah, it's called the spirit molecule. Um, yeah, because I heard various... When I, f- I first heard about DMT a few years ago, and it was described as things like, it's the brain, you're, it's the chemical your brain releases as you die, and it simulates the process of... I mean, I don't think that there's any significant evidence for that i yeah. will say that and it does say that um it's what gets released when you dream i've had dream-like states that's not that's not the norm usually usually if you just look up like dmt images on the internet you'll see like it's a bunch of like fractals and stuff like that when you smoke dmt it's like a lot of times it's like you're shooting through all these weird tunnels and fractals and there's all these bizarre colors and stuff like so that. how does that differ from say a strong lsd trip like strong acid trip acid trips like m- makes like trees or like wood grains look kind of cool um you smoke enough dmt and you um go to like what seems like a completely different world entirely um i've seen various like hologram computer chip cities made out of codes and stuff like that um with lights that were communicating with me and that sort of thing and um i i think it's the inner workings of the mind it's what it look uh, what it looks like i think it's kind of like the movie inside out which is just like a very simple but wouldn't that be rather than the inner workings of your mind just a way that your brain is processing is describing the workings of the mind to yourself it's still right right it's it's still still giving you an image which is the way your brain works like like a dream is still a representation yes yeah and i i think so there's this guy daniel temet who um he wrote a book thinking in numbers but he's an autistic savant 
who uh he's like rain man but functional so you can like watch ted talks from him and stuff and he also has synesthesia but he has pi memorized to like twenty five thousand digits and uh-huh. he says that he just pictures pi in his mind and he just sees this weird colorful landscape with all these weird shapes and so stuff. that's it there there is i think there's a history of certain people who are extremely good at mathematics or physics having synesthesia mm-hmm. like richard feynman famously had synesthesia and it helped him like he would it helped him picture equations physics equations because he would see them he'd see different symbols and different letters and numbers as different colors and it would build a picture of that equation yeah and and so people like that and this guy daniel have have even daniel makes paintings of like here's what the first 30 digits of pi look like in my head and some scientists think that he's just making this up and using common memory tricks to perform these incredible feats but i've seen those paintings and i'm like oh i've seen stuff just like that on interesting because it is um in general even people who don't have any form of savantism or whatever the i'm not sure what the uh, noun is that. but um people who don't have any form of that or don't the people who are the memory expert the memory tricks in general involve mapping numbers or playing cards or whatever to physical objects like that's the way that most memory experts right. of any type uh memorize things like pi or 10 decks of cards as they go like they me- they memorize all right these the number 11 is a bear or whatever right. and then they tell a story with everything as they go through so like the red bear goes into the cottage meets the man wearing an orange baseball cap and like and that relates to the the numbers five six nine eight four one yeah two. and they say to do that like even just memorizing a grocery list or something like that yeah is to, the more ridiculous the story you can make the more your brain will because your brain kind of your brain's much better at remembering stories and patterns than it is and pictures than it is yeah. just bare facts especially like really graphic outrageous ones are more salient um and and so so you'll see kind of landscapes like that sometimes but i have seen dream like states i've seen actual like dreams within dmt and not very often but it's happened um because usually nothing nothing looks like this world in dmt but i've seen like scenes of like my girlfriend and i walking down the sidewalk or something like that and so i i do believe that possibly um it is the chemical that gets released when you're dreaming and um and also i've had dreams after smoking dmt like going to sleep that night where i've had very similar um like dmt ish experiences during a dream how does it um you say the actual trip for dmt is like 10 minutes long yeah so what are the after effects wonderful body buzz and you'll feel a little goofy for a few more minutes um but like could you for example drive a car half an hour later oh absolutely a half hour later yeah yeah no problem at all um the body buzz is more like a it's just like a little bit of a body high um i guess like if you had like a a cbd oil or something like that uh, Uh for marijuana the more the the non-psychoactive um Uh Uh, and yeah, I, I would say it's, it's just a really, really nice body buzz. That's what I, sometimes I just have like a puff of DMT cause I don't want to like break through and have that incredibly intense experience. And I just like, I'm like, oh, I feel a little goofy for like a minute or two, very mild. And then I just have this very nice, pleasant body. Does buzz. it then leave you more tired? Does it sort of, do you feel, cause things like MDMA 
floods your brain with I think, serotonin, right? Which then means you get like a couple of days later, people can end up feeling quite down because yeah. it's just depleted the reserves of. Yeah, you want to take a SSRI after after doing that kind of stuff, like, or Prozac or something like that, because it will it will just pump that right back in there for you. Uh, um, but um, but I would say that. In my experience, after DMT, I feel very energetic. I don't, I don't know if it's just because I'm excited about what I just saw or the adrenaline yeah. or what it is. And you don't feel like a down or anything like two days later or three days later? I would say the main negative effect and why I kind of shy away from DMT at particular points um, in time are are simply because I have lots of work to do and focus on. like. Right now, I'm I have like eighty emails a day and and trying to organize this tour. This yeah, trying to organize this tour and actually that's not even so bad. I can handle that. I would say that the creative writing process, or if I have to, oh, th- this would be the worst. Studying for my podcast, like when I have to like sit and read neuroscience or whatever. If I smoked DMT the day before, I'm going to be very kind of. Um, easily distracted because I'll start reading and then all of a sudden I'll start thinking about DMT again and be like, what the fuck was that? Because <laughs> it's just the most fascinating thing in the world. And um, and so I, I find myself distracted. Then the other thing is, is I've felt, especially in the beginning, um, and I've, I've heard people kind of report the same thing, that it can make this reality this perception seem a bit like slipperier, like it could all go away or like this is like a lie or a simulation or something like that. And what they saw on the DMT is, is the actual reality. And I know that feeling. I felt it as well. But your brain also just loves grabbing onto like anything new and, uh-huh. and exciting, you know, and, and that's why it seems like so, pro- uh, so profound and important. I have, um, I have a joke in my act about that. Like if, if you, if you were to instead take someone whose brain was like they were on, uh, LSD all the time, like, you know, Daniel Temitz is kind of like that, uh, or, or any of these synesthesia people where, uh, you know, things are like maybe more rainbowy or, you know, just kind of different and it's fine. You navigate life just fine. Uh-huh. Um, and then when you're older, someone gives you a pill that brings them to our perception. Like it would, it would seem just as profound and real. Like, Oh my God! There's these things called jobs and like <laughs> these entry level positions that one can apply for, and you can work your way up. And... There are trees that don't melt; <laughs> yeah. they just—they're always there, just as a tree. You can just climb it. <laughs> and, and and then and like what you would what you would come back from report it like it would each time would sound different and like confused. It was like, I thought I had it figured out. And then I went and there was like this weird thing. Like everyone was in these uniforms all the time. And then there was this thing like casual Friday where people could just dress in loose fitting clothing. <laughs> and it would just like, it would just seem mind boggling to you, you know? And I, and I think that's, that's like one of the important messages with psychedelics is just like this, this life is crazy. This life's, this life's the trip. Uh, it's just, we're so used to it that it's boring to us that should be a perfect place to finish but i do want to i just want to jump back quickly because you said you you said cbd isn't psychoactive the kind of yeah what uh, is there any consensus on what psychoactive means because again like in the uk that was a recent 
they passed a very bullshitty drugs law that banned all psychoactive stuff. It was supposedly to close loopholes with designer drugs where they ban one thing and then a slightly different chemical comes out. Right, right, right. But it ended up having to have exemptions for things like food yeah and like perfume because any of those things are theoretically psychoactive yeah like like eating chocolate makes you feel real good yeah <laughs> so how is like, like a body high something like cb i guess that was just like shorthand that i used for ease of a much more complicated um nuanced um idea of of how this is the problem with putting things in neat little categories is that uh-huh. that's not how the world works so that's a very good question that i don't know how to answer exactly i w- i would say that um a hundred percent cbd doesn't have any more of a psychoactive quote-unquote effect than say like an aspirin where you Uh might feel where where you wouldn't consciously know that you're like on a thing whereas like if you get a buzz from a cigarette or a beer or whatever else you're like ooh, my consciousness feels like loopy right now right like i i guess i would think of more more in terms of like a loopiness within your head rather than rather than just being like oh, I took this pill that makes it feel as if I'm, like, in a hot tub or something like right. that. Or or, or makes this pain in my fingers something. not be there. Right, right, right. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely... That's a fantastic question, because how do you quantify something like that? But it's, I guess it's just, like, a simplified shorthand way of answering that. Shane, where can our listeners find more about you and where you're going to be and your podcast shane moss m-a-u-s-s dot com and um i'm doing my good trip tour starting october 2nd i think second or third in flagstaff arizona and i'm going to be going like everywhere in the country it's 65 it might actually be more than 65 cities and um and if so so if you go on there um we're still adding dates and in confirming ticket links and everything else um but uh it I will be in a place near you if you are in the U.S. and hoping to take it internationally next year as well. And then my podcast is called Here We Are. Uh, It comes out weekly and I interview um, different scientists about life. Um, And, uh, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you like sciencey things. Mine's also. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a huge crossover between people who enjoy both of our shows. Yeah, I think you have a funnier show than I do. I definitely think that my show is like way more like this is like uh, we're. uh, But also the episodes. Drier. uh, uh, I mean, I don't want to say dry. uh, uh, It's it's way more science. Yeah. so but then also some of the episodes we've done where we've had guest scientists on and we've been really serious have been some of the ones that the audience has responded the most to. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I if get... you're a fan of those ones of our episodes, then you'll definitely like yeah, what she does. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so please check that out. Give that well. a go. Um, Andy has the list of everyone who's donated in the last week, so I can't thank people, but I know there's quite a few of you. I remember the emails coming through, so thank you everyone who's gone to probablyscience.com and clicked on the PayPal button. Uh, thank you. We will be thanking you personally next week. Thank you as well, everyone who's used the Amazon shopping link. If you are buying anything on Amazon, click through our link first. Set that as the bookmark on your browser so you don't have to remember. And we get a kickback. It costs you no extra. And also thank you, everyone, who's been spreading the word, tweeting, Facebooking. We really appreciate that. Uh, spread the word. Follow us on Twitter at ProbablyScience. You can email us, ProbablyScience at gmail.com with any questions, comments, clarifications. And we will be back next week, hopefully with the whole gang. Uh, but thank you so much, Shane, for joining us. Thank you.